Welcome, this is Startups Unpacked. I'm your host, Dan Hightower, founder and angel investor. Each week, I'll chat with a startup founder to unpack what they're building and talk about their life as a founder. Today, I'm chatting with Madison Campbell, CEO of Lita Health. Lita Health is on a mission to transform existing systems of sexual assault prevention and care. So let's unpack this startup. We should probably just start off with like, you know, most importantly, when Slack was out, Monday morning, how late did you sleep in? <laughs> I when so you, I mean, are you on Pacific Standard Time or Eastern Standard Time? I have the worst of all combinations. I, I live East Coast and my startup is based in San Francisco. Okay. So I used to be based in New York, moved out to Palm Springs. So as I'm sure you see, like I I tweet normal times probably to you, which is like 9 a.m. But like that means that I'm up like anywhere between like 5:30 to 6 a.m. Now, there is times where I go to bed, I had like an edible before bed, I get very creative about the tweets, I go to Hootsuite, and I like schedule it. And so you'll see it when you see like a Hootsuite, like send one, it was me at like midnight being like, like the one that went viral today, which is so random. I was like, like message me and I'll tell you how many coffee cups you have on your, based off of your profile picture. And there's like 76 people commenting me like, do me, do me. <laughs> and, and I like last night was like, you know, what is a great idea for a tweet? How many coffee cups? Great idea. <laughs> Ask the fuck out. Like, yeah. Hootsuite. Yeah. Hootsuite. I really like Hootsuite. That's such a level up beyond any other shit poster is uh, posting from Hootsuite. That's like upper level echelon stuff. I didn't get into tweeting until recently when my co-founder was like, hey, Maddie, like you are very snarky and sarcastic. You should really spend that time being snarky and sarcastic on Twitter and not like in our Slack. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, great. And so I started really tweeting like a couple months ago and it's amazing. And oh my God, I feel stupid that I didn't like spend time on the platform. And I totally was like, oh, I hate Twitter. It sucks. Because... I do have all these like crazy ideas and then people who enjoy my humor, who really like it, like will come into my DMs, talk about investment, talk about, you know, how can they help? And then I do, I think, scare away people. So I've been like looking at my audience, women tend to definitely unfollow me. Men definitely follow me. I get like, That's hilarious. yeah, I get tons of startup men. And, you know, I've always been told, like, I have more of like an asshole or like male sense of humor. And so like, primarily my demographic is men when I'm like, running a sexual assault company (laughs) geared towards women. Yeah. I mean, it's such a funny thing to be. All right. So first thing, your team was like, get out of Slack with this, go somewhere else. And then Twitter was like the perfect, I don't know what you want to call it, like receptacle for the trash. (laughs) Which I agree with, and I am uh, 100% on the same page about. It. I recently started tweeting, like I don't know, like August or something, after a brief like six-year hiatus from Twitter. <laughs> Me too. I was I was really active on Twitter like my sophomore year of high school, and then I think a little bit in college. And like every time, I amassed like a niche like market, and then I was like, mm, I'm doing fine. I'm I don't need this anymore. But I. When I graduated, when I left college, I didn't graduate, I dropped out of college. But when I left college, 
I got rid of all my social media. Like I, I archived all my posts on Instagram. I don't use, like I've never, I mean, who really posts to Facebook anymore other than my mother, you know, <laughs> like my mother's posts on Facebook. It's like, it's wine day. Monday, Again. <laughs> Wednesday. Yeah. It's still wine day. Yeah. <laughs> and so like, I, I stopped posting on Facebook a long time ago. Definitely like I was posting a lot of like thought images on Instagram during college because like who isn't, you know, posting like, oh, you know, Miami spring break, like red solo cup during college, right? You know, and, and when you kind of get out of that, I was like, I don't really want anyone to see that anytime soon, you know? But I found Twitter is just like really... LinkedIn 2.0. Yeah. All like the cool investors are on LinkedIn. And I've been very good at getting the cool link or not LinkedIn, the cool Twitter investors onto our cap table, just simply by shit posting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so it, it's an interesting question, right? Is like, what is, what is a founder to do on Twitter when they know their investors are watching every tweet? Are they to act normal? Let's dive deep there. I want to talk. So, Does an investor buy your Twitter when they invest? Like, are you supposed to be building in public like 24 seven? And like, that's the only thing you're supposed to be talking about? That's a good question. So you sit in an interesting spot because you are, you know, technically an investor of Lita. I think my biggest fear when tweeting is my investors seeing my Twitter and being like, why isn't she spending time on like other things? That's my biggest fear is like when I like post something random, I'm like, I really hope they don't look at this and be like, what is Madison doing? Like, meanwhile, I have like massive ADHD. So I'm at all times doing 15 different things. But that's my biggest fear about like being so active on Twitter. And I'm not even building in public. I'm like shit posting in public to all of my investors. I not all of my investors follow me. A lot of them do. But at the same time, I kind of go into this and I'm like, if you've met me or if you've found out about me through somebody else, you probably have already bought into this whole big picture right here. And if you don't, I'm, you know, probably best that you're finding it out now and to not invest in future rounds because as much as everybody throughout my life has tried to like, you know, shape me and mold me. It never works. It, it never happens. And so you're kind of like, you're buying, this is what you're getting, you know? Yeah. And I hear this. I mean, I experience it personally as a, you know, founder of a startup venture back. My VC likes my posts, comments on it all the time. And it is that sensation, like the whole, oh my God, should I be, and I schedule off hours as much as possible to like, not Hootsuite, not full Hootsuite style, but like I'll schedule some posts to like stay focused during the day. But there is this sensation that you're distracted, even though it's you're building something that's ultimately beneficial to the startup. Um, and you're even you even have examples of drawing out capital from shit posting. <laughs> so I've drawn out so much capital. So it's, it's ridiculous, like the amount of FOMO I created via Twitter. So the, the notion that Twitter is not worthwhile is definitely wrong. Now, the notion of, I think, like, where it begs to ask the question is, once you're done accomplishing the goal that you use Twitter for, like, 
does it make sense to be as active, right? Because I'm pretty much closed. I think I'll always be accepting checks because that's the type of person I am. But like, you know, I've, I've been notionally closed for a long time. And now I'm like, well, I want to like continue this audience because when I go and raise a series A, I want, you know, Keith Rebois or whatever, the founders fund guy, right? Like to come into my DMs. Like I want those people to, to be active on my feed and to get the attention early on before I need to raise. So when I go and raise and I DM them, it makes more sense. You know what I mean? hundred percent. And I mean, there's a model to follow and ironically it's, it's VCs, you know, it's most VCs I see are building their own personal brands. Not, they're not like, you know, building the VCs handle. No, not at all. Because you're, you're falling in love with the partner. Right. And you're, you, that's who you're working with. You're not going to work with the, the logo. Right. It's the, it's the partner. And that's why like our Twitter is so lame. <laughs> like it's so lame. Like we're not like Wendy's. We don't have a big following. We post very like educational content, but I, I know I can be myself. And at, at the end of the day, like Elon, right? Like why did Tesla go up so much? It's like narrative, you know? And it, it, a lot of it is people banking on Elon as much as it is banking on batteries. And Elon shit posts all the time. And <laughs> people buy buy into that. Like when he posts like stock price for 2069, you're like, yeah, great. You know, yeah, amazing. Totally, 100%. And so I don't, I don't know, like, I, I, I have no idea. And I, I definitely know that in one of these days, I'm going to have an investor reach out and be like, hey, like, I don't know if this is the best use of your time. But I, I think I think it is interesting how it could be really, really beneficial, especially to new founders. Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole argument around how community-based startups are have a huge leg up, there's a huge argument to be made there. Just like if you already have an implanted or, or existing community, then your like real metrics start to look different, right? Like cost to acquire a customer, time spent raising capital changes. Those are real metrics. And I think there are really strong, strong arguments for it. But anyway, before we, before we spend the entire podcast talking about, which I probably could, tell me about your company. What does it do? Yeah, so we have a controversial company Although I think it's becoming less and less controversial and I keep saying controversial to keep the controversiality there, but eventually it's just going to be something that everybody has and everybody uses. So now my backstory is I was a sexual assault survivor. I didn't report my sexual assault, didn't get medical care, didn't get anything, didn't tell anyone, you know, waited a long time to really come to terms with it. And then after floundering around, after dropping out of college and sleeping on my friend's couch in New York City, I came up with this idea. It was, it was an amalgamation of the Me Too movement and my own personal trauma coming to light and trying to figure out where I was going to end up fitting in the world. And so, you know, our company is called Lead to Health and our main core novel product is the first ever at-home rape kit. So sexual assault survivors don't have to go to the hospital such as myself, if they so choose, and they have another option to collect and store evidence and get that evidence tested in 48 hours versus the average government turnaround time of two years with us. And so we're the first privatized version of the sexual assault kit process. Now, why that is controversial is no one has ever thought to bring this to the private market. 
And so we have gotten tons of, of folks that basically were like, you're profiting off of sexual assault, you're profiting off of this, you know, venture capital, blah, blah, blah. And so it is very interesting. That's why I say it's controversial. It's because this has only ever been things that have been handled from lobbying, federal initiatives, nonprofits, and never a privatized company going in there and being like, hey, you guys aren't doing a good job. I'm going to come and compete <laughs> to make you do a good job. And that's where I am, you know, it's fine for a lot of people. And there's a lot of good experiences, I'm sure that people have had I, I haven't really heard them. But I'm sure people have had good experiences. I mean, we we only hear, oh, my God, I was in the ER for 30 hours. This was the worst, most traumatic thing of my life. But I'm sure there's somebody somewhere with an empty ER and amazing nurse that had a good experience. And on our end, we're like, look, like there's a shortage of sexual assault nurse examiners, COVID is running rampant, sexual assaults on the increase, you need another option. And if there existed to be a solution to this problem, it would have come up, but it hasn't. So how did you start building it? So I think with trying to take something that really sucks the first thing you have to do is kind of really dive into why it, it sucks so much. And I would, I would probably give that as an advice to anyone who like wants to take an antiquated industry and then try to revolutionize it. You just really dive deep into um, every single reason why it doesn't work. And so the way that I started building it was having a bunch of customer interviews or whatever you want to call them, like stakeholder interviews, getting to know everyone, asking them a bunch of questions, asking them, would this even work? And then also like taking the kit apart, going through each section, you know, trying to look at every single nook and cranny of how it's put together, what the process is, how you get to the hospital. Like that is what I did to, to begin building it. I, I took what currently existed and I tore it apart and I tried to learn everything I possibly can. And by the way, I'm still learning things. There are still things that I did not know, but the first couple months, like the first three months, nothing was built like a business plan. A pitch deck was built with horrible branding, you know, mind you, but like it was, it was to basically look at like, say, Hey, I don't know exactly what the solution is yet, but I'm going to tell you like how big I think this might be of a problem. Yeah. How did you go about, I mean, I'm sure there's rough math on case counts, but how did you go about sizing your market in a way that VCs wouldn't be like, oh, this is just top down? Good question. I think even to this day, I'm figuring out how to size the market. But there's been a point where I got comfortable enough with how I've sized the market that I kind of was like, I think it's big enough that I'll get venture capital, which you know I ended up doing. But I still think it's actually bigger because I didn't position this. Like I was in an investor call today and they were like, you know, how big is like the sexual assault trauma market and how do you monetize that? And I'm like, I think it's really big. And I, I have not put the like rubber to the road and, and try to figure out how big it is. I just know it's really big. So what I did initially is instead of focusing on just the amount of sexual assaults, so approximately in 2019 is where I took the majority of my numbers. So 2019, 130,000 I think total reports of sexual assault in the United States, 
maybe, or the kids done something like that, a small number. And then you have to estimate the amount of people that didn't report. So nationally speaking, that's 77%, but on colleges, it's 90%. And there's a bunch of weird math. And so we eventually got to the number of, there's approximately combined with reported numbers that have actually gone to trial and all that kind of stuff and non-reported you know, instances, whether it's Title IX or not Title IX and outside of the college is like 2.3 million a year in the United States and could be less, could be more, I'm not really sure. So 2 million, 2 million times $20, which is like the kit price is not a good enough business model for, for venture capital. And so the way that we expanded this is one, we thought about vertical integration first. So like I said, mental health, STD testing, plan B, all these different things that are needed that when you vertically integrate a company like that, that increases, you know, the amount of opportunity. But then we also started thinking about our company in a different way other than something that you buy whenever it's needed. So the problem with like sexual assault is like you're sexually assaulted and in the moment you have to be like, oh my God, what do I do? Do I go to a hospital? Do I do this? Do I do that? If you start actually marketing and selling the kit as a preemptive tool. Right. You need it in advance of, yeah. Yeah. And so that's how we started making the, the business model work. So not even like the, the total addressable market to investors. It was like, how do we actually like make a business model that will survive? And so that's kind of how we did that. And then the way that we really kind of like reeled it in to make sure it would work is trying to sassify the company as much as humanly possible by saying, hey, our goal is to go B2B, give this out to every like incoming freshman or incoming, you know, military person coming into deployment or this or that, whatever. Those are are reasonable numbers that you can predict year after year. And so I was able to start predicting ARR and booking, you know, you know, predictive based off of interest, what ARR would look like. And that's kind of how I started to make what a, what would look like a non- tech fundable company into like a SaaS based company in a way. Yeah, that's brilliant. So what was the MVP? It, it wasn't vertically integrated or anything like that, I imagine. It wasn't a B2B. It was not even any testing. It was a very small cardboard box that I bought off of like, you know, one of the, the cardboard box printers. It was super small, smaller than a shoe box. Like, you know, those pencil boxes you used to have in like middle school. It was basically the size of a pencil box. Inside, I bought foam from like a craft store and I had like a, a serrated knife where I like carved the foam, like little places for swabs. And it was three swabs in carved out foam in inside a little like a little box and a little cardboard box that I ordered online. That was MVP. <laughs> and you were like D to seeing that online? I, I, I didn't end up selling it. Like we, we just ended up like showing it around, but that was like the earliest version. So the earliest version before it even got to people, because I had to go show it to people. They're like, what is it going to look like? Even though I was like, I can't like, I have, you know, before money, right. And that's about as good as you can get. Like if you're a tech product, it's different, right? Because you're like, I'll, I'll do a no code thing. I'll do this. I'll do that. When you're doing like a physical product, you're like, I guess I'm going to like you know, build this myself, like, and, and then try to show an investor. That's what I did. And, and then 
you got feedback showing that around. And I guess how, what were some like one or two examples of iterations that you made based on feedback showing that pencil box around? We've been through so many iterations of the kid to the point where it was like a week ago, we were trying to reduce our the air space in our kit so we can reduce like the amount of shipping costs and all the stuff that <laughs> just when we thought the kit was perfect, literally like three weeks ago, we, we talked to like, you know, someone who's a, a very expert in supply chain. He was like, oh, you can reduce this by like 30% and save, you know, blank amount. And we're like, fuck, 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 fuck. I'm like, we just got it perfect. So, so I, I know viewers can't see it, but this is basically what it looks like now. So it's like this, it's, you know, how, how big would you say this is? It's like. That is the size of two Apple iPhone boxes. Yeah. Yeah. You open it up. The instructions are on the inner flap. You have three swab boxes. They're easy dry swab boxes. Instructions, return shipping label are on the bottom. So like the way that we're going to cut this out in terms of space is, is reduce the amount of airspace in the swab boxes. They can actually be a lot more compact. But so this is kind of as small as we were able to get it with absolutely everything. We now have six total swabs and a place for you to put your underwear. Um, probably won't add anything more in. And that's when we, we talked to nurses who advised us on that. That was basically what we got. And the way that we've done a lot of our kit design too is based off of something called an early evidence kit, which was created in Australia. So in Australia, the notion of doing at-home kits is actually called doing an early evidence kit. And so in far-reaching parts of Australia, right, where you can't get to a hospital, you can't get to the police, you can't do this, you can do an early evidence kit. And so we based the majority of our kit design and what's in the kit based off of what they started doing in Australia like five or 10 years ago, but no one ever like implemented to start doing in America. It's funny that like the ingenuity would have come from like the far reaching parts of Australia, but like, yeah. you know, but it's good. It's good to know that we weren't the first ever to think of this. Like it was, it was good to know that, Hey, like there are people in, you know, very first world countries who have been like, Hey, this is a good idea. And so if they got behind it, you know, we can force people to get behind this. So who were the first paying customers? Was it direct to customer or is it originally a B2B play? We're originally starting with B2B play. However, there is going to be a big kind of direct to consumer push soon because of the fact that COVID rendered a lot of institutions like, like there's no need to go in colleges. There's no need to go to college, you know, corporations, no need to go to an office. And so out of necessity, just for our market and for the people who want to use us, we will be going more like last mile delivery. So you know, using last mile delivery partners such as like DoorDash or Uber, Postmates, whatever, to get those kids to people in a timely manner versus kind of like the, the B2B approach where it's already there. So this is evidence, essentially. Yes, it is. It is evidence. <laughs> there has to be some asshole who's like, no, 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 not collected by an authority. Tell me about that asshole. Have you not Googled me? <laughs> no. <laughs> are you are you the asshole? I'm not the asshole. Oh, okay. been... <laughs> I'm not the asshole. There's so many assholes. So many. Like, I, I can't even name to you how many assholes. In the first month of our company, 
we pissed off so many people without even have a, having a product <laughs> because this has never been done before. It, like, it came out of the woodworks. Like what, what governing body came out of the woodworks and said, no, no, no. Um, Michigan attorney general hates me. Okay. The interesting reason why Michigan doesn't like me is because when I first started the company, I'm like, I'm going to go to MSU and I'm going to tell them they need rape kits because they do. Because Larry Nasser was the known rapist at MSU and they had like 900 plus Cleary Act violations last year or in 2019. It was like insane things happen there, right? It is very funny to me that the majority of colleges that tell me to like get the fuck away are the ones that have the worst problems. So I sent a letter to MSU. They forwarded my email to the Attorney General of Michigan who then had a whole big thing. You're, you're capitalistic. It's not going to hold up. It's not going to do this. It's not going to do that. You're not providing a hospital experience. Of course, we're not providing a hospital experience. We're not a hospital. Like, what do you want? And, and it's interesting, like, when you look at, like, telemedical companies, like, telemedical companies have to lobby because doctor groups and, and other groups that are, you know, in, in actual person don't want telemedical becoming a huge big thing because it can eat into, you know, a bunch of different margins. So it all comes down to, to money. Every single argument that I've ever gotten into with an asshole has been around, how are you going, not explicitly, right? They'll never say this, but it's around, how are you going to make me feel embarrassed that I wasn't doing this? And also, how am I going to lose money from this? From the nonprofit side, you know, they're deathly afraid that we're going to steal grant money you know, from them. And from the attorney general side, like imagine how stupid they're going to look when we're able to do testing in a fraction of the time that they're able to do it, you know, get results back, actually make people happy with our process when for the last 50 years, they fucked it up. Okay. So, I mean, like, I, I mean, like, that's the most interesting part about all of it to me is this, like, when you really look under the hood, there's actually some really interesting yeah. You know what's the most fascinating though? What's that? Only ever came from Democrats, primarily Democrats. The people that have been opposing us the most have been Democrats. Um, older Democrats, like 55 plus, hmm. often, oftentimes much older, like 60 plus, like that kind of stuff. You have theories on that? I kind of, I spent a lot of time theorizing on it but i haven't gotten to a good remark so i would like to yeah what do you what do you think what do you think i don't even know i would say i would lean back on what you said around what's it going to do to my money or my reputation you know if you're a democrat you're you're looking to fund programs that are in conversation with you about how much funding they need and you're changing you're changing that potentially that's a stab in the dark, though. <laughs> I, I think it's like part of that. And then I think there was one person who was an advisor to me who gave a very interesting answer. And uh, they said, look, there's all these different waves of feminism, right? There was a wave of feminism that fought for voting. There was the wave of feminism that fought to be in the workplace. And now we're getting into, I think, a wave of feminism where it's like, hey, you know, we can do whatever we want with our body and please don't touch it unless we tell you to. And so 
a lot of like the, the different wave of feminism that we're fighting with, it's like the wave of feminism that fought even to be in the, the workplace, right? And they, those, those folks had to get sexually assaulted and sexually harassed probably nearly every day for the majority of their career, right? Imagine being at that point of life where you're like, look, I have dealt for 40 years with sexual assault, you know, sexual harassment, my boss, like slapping me on the ass saying like, great girl, like great job, you know, always getting compared to X, Y, Z. And you come around and you say in like a moment and you get all this press for doing this, like, you know, you're going to, you're going to just make that go away. We had to deal with it. You should have to deal with it. Right. And so I, I don't know, that was like what somebody else explained to me. And I kind of got it. And I think there's more to like work on, but I do understand like, it is hard to like pass the torch to the next generation and realize that the next generation after you might not have to deal with the same things. There's a sense of jealousy there as well. Yeah. So, I mean, this is all like such a packed and charged and like you said, controversial story. I want to hear how fundraising went. Like, did you, did you talk to somebody about getting, getting like your mind right before you went out on the road and, and started raising money? How did you, how did you game plan the approach? Cause you had to know you were controversial before you even went out. So, so I wrote that, like, I mean, a lot of investing is like high risk, high reward. And I think that if you don't view this as high risk, high reward, that's probably not a good idea for you. I know all startup investing is high risk, high reward. There's probably some where you're like, I'm a Gmail add-on, like worst case scenario is like, you know, oh, <laughs> like it doesn't work. The server is down. Like we do have a lot of risk associated with us. Like we have to work 10 times harder than lots of other companies because, you know, people in the most dramatic times of their life are going to be utilizing our platform and utilizing our services and we can't fuck up. Or if we do fuck up, we have to be very careful about how we're fucking up. And so... I think I rode that and I went after investors who I knew had made high risk, high reward bets before. And I'm like, hey, like PayPal. Yeah, like PayPal, Uber, Airbnb. Like, you know, do you understand these companies? Do you understand, you know, why they had a good payoff or a certain good payoff, right? And if they said yes, then that was kind of how I knew that they could be into this. How'd you build your list? Like your target investor list? So I don't think I had a target investor list written. I don't think. So the way that I, the way that I do most things in terms of sales, which I consider fundraising to be sales, is there is, there, there is a movie called The Princess Diaries too. <laughs> okay. I've got, I've got three sisters. I've seen it. Okay, so you know in the in the movie Princess Diaries 2, where it's like the Lord is telling his like, you know, the, the, the guy, it's played by Chris Pine, right? Chris Pine's going after Anne Hathaway. And he's showing, he's like, look, there's two ways of winning. There's like, I shoot a dart and I have to like hit the middle every time. Or I take all the darts and I like throw them at the same time. And I assume one will hit the middle. And so the way that I've done fundraising is exactly that way. And I, while it worked for me, I'm not sure it would work for everyone. So this is like taken in caution, but I ran like first, when I started, I ran LinkedIn bots 
to message any single person who had angel investor in their profile in a specific geographic location with an email. And I, I, for like two months sent out 800 messages per month and the majority of them did not work. Like, I think I probably had like an open rate of like 8%, like, or like a, a, you know, communication rate of 8% or something like that. But the reason why that was so good is it got me into it got me into being able actually to like have no shame about sending investor pitches. Just like if you're an actress, like auditioning, you know, for a role and like five auditions don't go well, but maybe like the sixth will go well. Like I just became shameless, absolutely shameless. And that when I look back and think like, why did I do good fundraising? I think it's because I have absolutely no shame. I will ask anybody for money. I will tell people like, like via Twitter, if they're like, Hey, I want to get in, like, let's have a call. Be like, like rounds closed. <laughs> like, here's my documents. Let me know. <laughs> you know, like I, I try to honestly use the tactics that I know for certain men are using all the time and, and just put it on them. Like I have no shame. I will ask, like I said, I will ask anybody for money. I will tell anybody like, you know, whatever, whatever I, I basically need to do to get that meeting. And then I'll convince them in the meeting. And, and that every time where I've not been able to convince somebody to invest is because they weren't able to see me, right? Like they weren't able to like, talk to me, see my emotions, like, you know, have, have us emote back and forth because that's where I think I'm, I'm the best. Mm-hmm. Makes tons of sense. I mean, that's, that's why I invested well, sort of indirectly through uh, syndication, which is another interesting topic, right? Like you opened up part of your round allocation to a syndicate. I'm curious if you want to talk about that, like the decision. I, I allowed a couple syndicates into the round actually. So I think syndicates are great because it cleans up the cap table, but also like, I didn't ask like Julian or Tyler, right? Like I didn't, I wasn't like, Hey, like you guys want to syndicate this deal? They're like, Hey, we want this allocation. And I, I didn't really ask them like, okay, how are you getting the allocation? How did they find your startup? I'm part of on deck. And so I, I had an investor from on deck and then they, then Julian was like, Hey, I want to talk to you. And then I got to know him. And I mean, he's like, he's like hype. You know what is so amazing? I am honored that all my investors are such like hype people. Like after Julian invested, he would like hype me up to so many people. And I was like, why do I deserve this? Like, <laughs> you got your own like MC basically. Yeah. You know, in fact, like if anyone ever is like, hey, I want to get to know you. I want to do a reference check. I honestly like sometimes I'd rather them just talk to my investors because I, I know for a fact, like, they're all such hype people that if, if any of them were like, yeah, like, you know, I want to check out and see if you're legit. I'm like, talk to like the 40 people on my cap table, like go for it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Did you like on deck? I loved on deck. I loved on deck. I did on deck writers. How was it? I loved it. And I'm sure it borrows from the same sort of infrastructure, at least, and adored adored the program, met so many cool people and also became a better writer, I think. So that's good too. I, I love, I was, I was thinking about enrolling my chief content officer in on deck writing, but they're still finishing out school. So I was like, after you graduate, you know, but I, I love on deck. 
but I do think that it's one of those things where you, you get out of it, what you put into it. And so I was even talking to a couple like ODF fellows earlier this morning and they're like, man, I'm so stressed. I don't have, you know, can't get fundraising, can't do this, can't do that. You know, I'm, I feel like I'm not getting enough out of ODF. And then you ask them and you're like, well, what are you doing? Like, are you setting one-on-one meetings? Are you going to this? Are you going to that? And of course the answer is no. And so- Oh, well, they, they bought into the ODF program thinking that that's all they had to do. Yeah. And, then- and I think there's definitely a lot of people that buy into these things and, and just don't put the effort in. And then like, why is this bad? Why did I spend $2,000, you know? And so for me with ODF, you know, ODF fellowship, I think focuses on a lot of like earlier stage stuff, but also fundraising. My goal, whenever I have to spend money for the company is I'm like, I'm going to go make that up. Whether I make it up in fundraising or make it up in sales, like if I like truly, I do think about all expenses. Like if I have to buy HubSpot for a year, I'm like, that costs me blank. I have to go then make blank amount of sales to cover it. And so when I did ODF, I'm like, okay, I'm spending what, like, you know, under, under 5k for this. And I'm going to have to go make that up in investment. And I, I did, I made it up an in investment in negative two days in the program. So you just, uh, you just go to Twitter and you ship post one thing and then you get. I, I got $20,000 in just being invited into the Slack. Oh, wow. Great. Yeah. And because, did you have to do intros in OnDeck Writer? Yes. Yeah, so the reason why I got the 20K is because in my intro, I shit, I, I did a shit intro. So it was like very comedic and it was like, I, I, yeah, instead of like posting like my Twitter, I was like, find me on Friendster, you know, or <laughs> very like dadish jokes and very, and now they use it, by the way, as like an example of like how to introduce yourself. So it worked. It worked. That's great. I love it. Um, and then I guess, what were your most common objections? In on deck? No, no, no. I'm sorry. In the fundraising process. I actually, believe it or not, from venture capitalists got told by some of them that I was immoral for being a for-profit company <laughs> and, that, and that they were passing on it because they think this could be a for-profit or not, not a for-profit, non-profit, sorry, non-profit company, which was, I think that was like the weirdest one that I, but I heard that less than 10 times more than five. It's like, you're mad at me for paying taxes. Like, I'm sorry, <laughs> my bad. Like, like, look, yeah. So I heard that a couple times. And then I heard a bunch of random ones. One of them was in the early stages before I figured out business model and, and Tam, it was Tam. But that was like, probably like month one to month two, where I had like the financial model that I ended up spending a lot of time on digging in, I had none of it, right? Like I never did the math. I never thought about it. Doing the math and actually thinking about it is what helped there. And then after I was able to do that, I got no more TAM questions ever. And so my best advice there is like, if somebody gives you the like, hey, I don't think your TAM is like big enough and they keep saying that that's the reason why they don't want to invest, go back and really do the math. Like really, 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 really do the math. Think of every possible thing that goes into the market of your company, which I was not doing 
because I'm like, oh, like, we'll look at, you know, this amount of reported number, which of course is a small number because nobody wants to report. So that was early on and I fixed it. Yeah. And then the, the, the for the for-profit nonprofit was a weird one too. I hear that. So more on the personal side, did you always know you wanted to be a founder? No, I wanted to be an actress growing up. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to be in entertainment. I sing opera. I loved improv, loved comedy, loved, you know, all that kind of stuff. I wanted to, I truly wanted to be in entertainment to the point where my mother, when I ended up going to school for epidemiology was disappointed that I left the art community, which everyone, like everyone, yeah. Like, you know, every parent is like, oh, I don't want my kid going and getting, you know, going to dance school. An art history major. Yeah, yeah. an art history major. Meanwhile, my mother is like, I like, don't want you to go into STEM, (laughs) you know, which is funny. Yeah. So I thought I wanted to be in entertainment my entire life. And then frankly speaking, I realized I wasn't good enough. So I started to realize, I don't think I've told anybody this either, but I started to realize that even though I tried to put in as much effort as anyone else, there was a level that I maxed out at and I could not get any better. I I honestly thought, I don't think I can get any better. And the reason why these people are like, not, you know, not hiring me, not casting me, were totally out of my out of my wheelhouse like things that I couldn't change like I have a very like I don't know if you can hear I have a very small lisp okay not really but like very very small right I got told for like four years of high school and you know high school is tough yeah (laughs) okay you know high school is really, 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 really tough. Bullying, all that kind of stuff. You're growing, puberty, boys, you know, sex for the first time, whatever. And I got told basically every week, you know, of, of my high school career because I went to a, a, a pri- private theater school. And then I, went, I ended up leaving the private theater school to go full-time into a conservatory. So I was spending like 18 hours, like basically a day, like, you know, doing, doing work and basically every week. And at the end, like almost every day, people were coming to me and saying, the reason why we can't cast you is because of your lisp. And like, and, and, and it was devastating to me because I'm like, I am working so hard. I am, I, I feel like I'm better than a lot of these people. And, and I was always like, you know, I'm, I'm the flower pot in Beauty and the Beast, or I'm like the secretary in, you know, blank, right? Because, because of something that I was born with. And that, that was the realization when I woke up to entertainment and why I ended up leaving. It's so funny. Everyone I know that has a lisp is a remarkable, a remarkable person. Maybe because you were bullied, you know, growing up. Like without a doubt, they're either pro athletes, executives, or founders now with you. And there's got to be something there because it's without, without a doubt, there is no average person I know who has a, a speech impediment of any kind. Anyway, so you mentioned you bought Hubstack or maybe that was just an example. Hubstack, HubSpot and Substack. HubSpot, Hubstack. I was looking at a Substack page on my browser when I said it. 
Substack could be a great idea. You never know. Anyway, what is your secret weapon in your like tech stack for the thing that gives you an un- unfair advantage as like a founder or a company? I invested a good amount of time in learning Excel. And so I've become very good at hammering out Excel and numbers and and doing math and getting better at mental math as well. And I think that that is huge, actually. So one, because like the mental math and doing math in public is, is dangerous. You have to be careful. It is. It is dangerous. You know, it was really funny. I had this very in-depth like investor call. They ended up investing, but it was the hardest investor call I've ever had. They were asking these numbers, which I had, I was like, I didn't want to go into the fact that like the data is really hard to actually find the good numbers, but it was like, how many hospitals in the U S do these examinations? How many kits are they doing in each hospital per day? Like how many nurses to each like hospital bed, you know, something like that, where I'm like, I know round about the numbers, but I have to like kind of calculate them, you know, in, in my head. And, and I ended up doing it and he ended up investing. So yeah, mental math and being good at Excel. I mean, look at every company that IPOs goes and hires a CFO because they're like the founders are really bad at math and they can't. <laughs> and so get, being good at math is probably a good thing. Mm-hmm. Love it. And then more generally, is there anything that you want the audience to know? Like, is there a beta? Is there a, a call to action? My marketing team tells me I need to have more call to actions with everything I do, but I, so we're launching and releasing everything. We've been very stealth um, in April, which is sexual assault awareness month. So the best thing you can do to support us is follow me and follow the company and wait. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. That is like the best possible thing you can do because I have a lot planned. And I can't tell, I can't tell listeners, I'll tell you offline, but I have, I have a lot planned and I just, I need to focus on that, you know? And so I'm like, just follow me because you need to, you'll see, you'll see when you. The website is ledo.co, right? Leda.co. And then let's see where, what is your Twitter handle? Did you? It's a combination of my name, Madison. And martyr because I'm a martyr. Okay, M A R T Y R D I S O. Martyr Dyson. Got it. Martyr Dyson. Yeah, basically, you know, a martyr is somebody who like keeps saying something is bad and then no one believes them. (laughs) (laughs) And like, and it's not that. Yeah, sometimes I do feel like a martyr because I'm like, why won't anyone see how bad it is? Like, I keep telling you, this is really bad, really bad. We need to do something. But I, I think people are waking up. So. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for uh, hanging out. You are quite welcome. Thanks for having me.